This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense and his clear, open heart. In order to continue presenting these podcasts, we need your support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash jack and you can donate there or you can go through our Amazon or Audible affiliate links and that's another great way to support the podcast thank you for your generous attention so what i'd like to speak about this evening for this for the time we have together is uh, some of the principles of buddhist psychology or the psychology of buddhism um, and I hope that they are alive in a way that is immediate and useful for you. Because they speak, when you look at the psychology of Buddhism, um, they speak in a really practical way to our human circumstance. And they begin many of the Buddhist texts with a kind of opening line, um, Oh... Nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, remember your true nature, remember who you really are. (coughs) And the spirit then of Buddhist psychology from the very beginning is not so much about fixing ourselves or making ourselves into something else that we might imagine we could become, but rather remembering um, who we really are, the capacities of our mind and heart for freedom and awakening that are our birthright. And then the Buddha goes on, he says, just as the four great oceans have but one taste, the taste of salt, so too do all of these teachings have but one taste, and that's the taste of freedom, liberation, freedom of heart and mind. They all point to this possibility of freedom in our circumstance in our very lives. You remember, many of you, this passage from Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh. He says, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. They showed the way for everyone to survive. 
And I think particularly in these times in the world, and maybe there have been other times like these, there probably have, but in these times where there is a lot of quite visible chaos and war and conflict and fear, um, that it's not only important, but perhaps a, a, a... a more compelling word, it, it is um, a responsibility or a gift that we can give to both ourselves and to those around us and to the earth of finding a way to center, to still ourselves, to quiet the mind, to open the heart so that we, like that person on the refugee po- boat, become a center of calm a center of wisdom, a center of understanding in the midst of the difficulties around us. There's a poem from Rumi that's a kind of a story that I'll use for a bit of a thread tonight in this talk. Um, There was a merchant setting out for India. He asked each male and female employed in his household what they wanted to be brought as a gift. Each told him a different exotic object, a bolt of silk, a silver figurine, a pearl necklace. When he asked his beautiful caged parrot, the one with the lovely voice, she said, when you see the Indian parrots, describe my cage. Say I need guidance here in my separation from them. Ask how our friendship can continue with me so confined and them flying about freely in the meadows. Tell them I remember well our mornings moving from tree to tree. Ask them to drink a cup of ecstatic wine and honor me here in the dregs of my life. (laughs) Tell them that the sound of their quarreling high in the trees would be sweeter than any music. This parrot is the spirit bird in all of us, that part that wants to return to freedom and is the freedom. What she wants from India is herself. That's part one of the story. We'll continue with it. So in the Buddhist teachings, what we explore through the power of our own attention and mindfulness and understanding uh, is the possibility of shifting from inner confusion, attachment, fear, bondage, from what's called the small sense of self or the body of fear to a spacious, free, liberated, easy, wise, wakeful presence in the world. And all of the teachings of the psychology of Buddhism, again, are ways of shifting our identity, our sense of ourselves from the fearful states, the confused states, to this inner freedom. It affects our minds as we begin to pay attention. Mind is sort of the beginning of it. But our attention also um, transforms our physical life. Uh, Sir James Mackenzie, I believe his name was, in 1886, was the father of mind-body medicine. He brought a paper rose under glass to one of his asthma patients who was terribly allergic to roses. And when he took the glass bell off the paper rose, 
she went into a full-blown asthma attack, even though there was no scent at all. Um, and he began to describe, you know, a hundred and some years ago, how the way we think and the way we perceive affects everything. Joanna Macy puts it this way. She says, scientists can see more quickly than the politicians that there's no technological fix, no amount of computers, internet, no scientific revolution can save us from population explosion, deforestation, climate disruption, continuing warfare and racism and pollution and extinction of species. We are going to have to want different things, seek different pleasures, pursue different goals than those that have been driving us in the global consumer economy. We'll have to live in a different way. We will have to change our consciousness. So it's the shift of consciousness for ourselves individually, and it's a shift of consciousness for the world and the community within which we live. Now, as we start to sit in meditation and become mindful of our experience, we can see the ways that we get caught. We get caught in stories and fear and confusion and longings and all the things that catch us up or the ways that we hide and deny what's happening. And we can also sense that as we pay attention, there is another way to be which is not so entangled, which is not so caught. Now initially, as you start to meditate, it's not that easy. It's actually kind of humbling. You sit here and you say, okay, I'm just going to sit quietly and be aware of the breath coming in and out or name, bow to the different experiences. There's happiness and sadness and there's planning and remembering and just sit like a Buddha. Nice idea, right? And you all looked great, I have to say. You really looked very good at it. But as we know, the mind has no pride and it will do anything. So there you were sitting looking like a Buddha and meanwhile some of you were, you know being angry at somebody that you had a fight with and some of you were worrying about money and some of you were, you know, thinking about dating and some of you were thinking about not dating, you know. (laughs) You all those kind of things in your body and whatever. And you say to your mind, well, just be quiet, you know. Can't we just sit and be present and spacious and still? And then the mind has a mind of its own and it goes all these other places. So it's humbling. Um, one Tibetan Lama called meditation um, one insult after another, basically. (laughs) So the the poet and spiritual teacher, Oriah Mountain Dreamer, talks about helping a participant at the end of a meditation seminar, some kind of seminar that she was assisting at. And here she says, at the very end of a long day, a small, thin woman in an oversized parka introduced herself as Isabel. Can I do this meditation on my own, she asked. Yes, I said, I'm sure you can, although many people find it easier to establish meditation with the help of a group. It's hard to keep up the discipline on your own. But what will it give me? What will I get it if I do this every day? Her tone took on a whining quality, and I felt my irritation rise as she continued. How fast will it work? Will I feel a difference after a week? How will I know it's working? 
This was exactly the kind of thing I detested. The quest for the quick fix, the desire for guaranteed outcomes, the simple answer. Do this and you will get that. My sons were waiting for me at home and I just wanted to get out of there. I took a deep breath, looked directly at Isabel and set my knapsack down on the floor. I tried to slow down my words thinking that maybe if I spoke slower I would feel more patient. (laughs) Well, I said, meditation is more a process than a goal-oriented activity. It can help you become more aware of what's going on within and around you, and this can help reduce stress. My best advice is to try it and just be patient with yourself, I said. Then I picked up my bag, started to button my coat. We, you know, when we teach this, it's really we're just talking to ourselves right here. I really did have to leave, and I wanted to get out while I was feeling virtuous for not snapping her head off. <laughs> But as I started to move away, Isabel suddenly reached out and grabbed my arm with surprising strength. But what I want to know, she said, her voice rising in a crescendo that bordered on real panic, is will it, will it help me find God? If I meditate, will I have an experience of something or someone out there listening to me, someone really with me? And a wave of desperation swept out from her through me, and I was surprised to find my eyes filling with tears. This woman wasn't looking for an easy answer or for a guaranteed formula because she was lazy. She didn't want a simple plan because she was unable or unwilling to think critically about what would work. She wanted something she knew would work and work quickly because she was hanging on by her fingernails. She wanted something that would work in a week because she was afraid that she simply wasn't going to make it through months and years. I put my hand gently over Isabel's where it gripped my arm It's okay, Isabel. We all feel desperate at times. Me too, I said. Nobody does it by themselves. We all need help. And her hand relaxed a little beneath mine, and she started to cry, and we talked for a while longer. And I realized again there's no them, there's only us. And when I left, I didn't leave one of them. I said goodbye to one of us, a human being doing the best she can, searching for the home for which all our hearts long. So we start with the different ideas and things that we might hope will happen and try to get ourselves quiet, quiet the mind, open the heart. And then as we do, all this other stuff comes up. The unfinished business of the heart, the plans and memories, the grief we carry, the longings and loves, the beautiful things, all of it. The 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows come as we take our seat in this human form on the earth. So how do we meet this human incarnation that we're born into? This is really the task of the Buddhist practices. And I think about it tonight very much because I was away this last week on the East Coast um, with my wife's family. My niece, who was 32 years old, died very suddenly, leaving behind a a year-and-a-half-year-old daughter. And um, it was really just going back into the kind of tragedy in a family when a child has died. As, As her father said, nobody should have to bury their children, even though it happens. Um, And so there was tremendous grief and weeping and tears and loss and all of those things. And at the same time, um, 
she, um, she had a brother, this, my niece who died, my nephew, a couple of years older, and he was there with his wife and their one-and-a-half-year-old baby, little boy. And um, here we were sitting and grieving and, you know, kind of shocked and shaken and so forth. And then this little boy would come running up the way little boys do and say, you know, play with me and hand you a truck and hand you some, you know, Legos and the things he was doing um, and, and laugh. And you, you know, you had to respond to him. I'd get down on the floor and wrestle with him and play with him. And, and that was also strange. You all know it, that somehow there is both the, the, the sorrows of the world and at the same time there's this new life that's pushing itself up and saying, here I am anyway, even though there's death, there's also birth. And um, you can't tease them apart. They come together in this incarnation. It's what we are born into. And so we were there with that mystery and the tears and the loss and all of that. And it was a kind of a... That was the place, you know, that I guess I feel like mm, I feel a kind of gratitude for the meditation that I've done over these years, having sat with my own pain and fear and sat with people who've died and somehow practicing being present for the joys and sorrows made it possible both to be there and keep my heart open a bit and maybe to be helpful to them. To sit in meditation is to allow a kind of flexibility within us that doesn't close off to the changes of the world. In the Tao Te Ching, it says, humans are born soft and supple. When they die, they're stiff and hard. Plants are born tender and pliant, Dead, they're brittle and dry. Thus, whoever is stiff and inflexible is a disciple of death, and whoever is soft and yielding is a disciple of life. And I find meditation, even though we hold our bodies still, is not something that stops the movement of life, but instead allows us to actually feel the river of experience, the river of thoughts, the river of emotions, the river of the physical senses. And Buddhist psychology starts this way. It describes our experience as a river. There's the river of the senses of seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching, the river of thoughts and feelings, the inner river of the mind and the heart. That's the experience of life, and it's changing again and again and again all the time. We, we are a river. We don't just live in a river. You know, you think you're on the bank of the river. It's not true. You're floating down the river and you're part of the river. The cells of your body and the blood and the breath and the thoughts that come through, there's a river in your body and a river in your mind, feelings and thoughts. <coughs> so there's this river of experience that makes us up. And then there's the consciousness which knows it. And consciousness is an amazing thing because, you know, usually we're focused on the things outside. 
And we don't turn around and notice the fact that awareness is what allows us to know the sights in front of us, to feel the feelings in the heart, to hear the sounds that we're hearing. So let's do a tiny experiment. Just You don't have to change your posture at all, but just as you're listening, try something. Try not to be aware, okay? Just for them already set, okay, stop being aware, stop hearing. You can even close your eyes if you want to. You don't have to change your posture. I'm not going to hear, I'm not going to feel, I'm not going to sense my body, I'm not going to think. And see if you can do it. Try not to be aware of all these things. Anybody able to do it? Raise your hand. Right. You get an, you get an extra cookie for that, right? For being a wise ass. No. <laughs> Yeah, no. But what you discover, wait, so were you, could you stop being aware? There was no more awareness? You weren't aware of anything? I went right back to work. Hmm? I went right back to work. You went right back to work, exactly. So you were, being, you were, at, you were at work. You weren't here, you were someplace else. So the, being at work was the thought and the image. What you notice as you pay attention, actually, is that whether you stay with this body or these feelings or these thoughts, or you go back to work as you did, or you go back to some memory or you go to some plan, there's still awareness of something happening. Anybody who could actually stop and not be aware of anything, where there was just nothing happening. You can't do it, can you? And that's because consciousness is like the sky or the space within which we live and experiences of being at work, or being in, in a memory, or being in the future, or being, you know, the senses of our body, or hearing the sounds, those river of experiences play through the field of consciousness itself, play through the sky of consciousness. Um, and awareness is always present. Usually we don't notice it. With meditation, the invitation is to begin to come and rest in the space of awareness, to trust it to become mindful of the experience without being lost in it. So, so far, there's the river of experiences of sights and sounds and smells and tastes and feelings and thoughts, images and memories, as, as, as she said, and, and so forth, and the consciousness which knows them. There's one more element in the Buddhist description of the world, and that is between the consciousness and the experiences that come, there's a whole array of what are called mental qualities or mental factors, states of mind, if you will, that determine our relationship to experience. And there's 50 to them in one list and 121 in another. I don't think the monks could actually figure out you know, how to count them properly. Um, but I like Emily Dickinson's description. She just called them the mob within the heart. Okay. And some of them are what are called pain-producing or unhealthy or unskillful qualities. Fear, greed, aversion, delusion, restlessness, jealousy, worry, duplicitousness. The things where we get caught up in conflict with the world or grasping of the world. And all of those lead, whatever sight or sound we have, they lead us to feel frightened, to feel contracted, to hold on, to resist experience. They have a whole opposite set of mental states that also can arise in our experience. 
The opposite of grasping is openness. Instead of holding on, there's a kind of free flow, openness, generosity, ease. The opposite of aversion or hatred is love, an open-hearted relation to the world. The opposite of delusion is wisdom, clarity. Instead of not seeing things, there's a kind of clear, open knowing. And with love and wisdom and openness comes lightness and joy and pliancy and equanimity and goodwill and all these qualities that come because we're not in conflict with the world. We're at ease in ourselves. And spiritual practice in a certain way invites us to relax and let go of the small sense of self, the body of fear, the confusions, the difficulties that come, and begin to trust that we can rest in an awareness that will hold both the the tears and the laughter, the joys and sorrows, the praise and blame, the gain and loss, um, with an open heart. Now, it's not so easy to start with because our conditioning is to be identified with greed and hatred and delusion and ignorance and fear. This body of fear sensing ourselves as separate, it's a habit that we have. And with mindfulness, what we're invited to do is to examine this habit and see, is this really who we are? Is this really um, the way that we want to live? Does this serve us individually and collectively? In that way, the Buddha said, the teachings of the Dharma or the teachings of Buddhism are an invitation to each person to inquire into themselves and say, what makes up this human life and what's possible? Oh, nobly born, you could live in fear, you could live in confusion, you could live in ignorance or hatred of others or, you know, grasping. And what are the consequences if you live with those as the states of mind? Or you can pay attention and see these states and realize that you don't have to cling to them, that they're not your true identity. And instead, through mindfulness and compassion and understanding, begin to release them and realize, oh, there's a much freer and more open and joyful way to live. Now, what's true is that no matter how you choose to live, it's all going to keep changing. It is a river, and there will be praise and blame and gain and loss and birth and death and pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, sweet and sour, hot and cold. It is woven together in the fabric of our experience of our life. And that's what makes up this incarnation on this particular planet where you got born. So it's going to be that way, pleasant and unpleasant and joy and sorrow and gain and loss. So the point isn't to have pleasure and not pain. Anybody succeed in doing that? <laughs> to raise your hand. You know, or gain and not loss. Or praise and no blame. Security, says Helen Keller, is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do children as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. 
So it's this way. It's this changing river of experience. And some of it's pleasant and some of it's beautiful. Some of it's painful and some of it's neutral. And that's the way that it is. So meditation isn't to try to stop the river or to make it a particular way, only pleasure and no pain or only gain and no loss. Instead of contracting around experience, there's an alternate, which is to rest where we are, to sit like the Buddha, to walk, to talk, to move from a state or a space of open-hearted awareness, that mindfulness where we rest in the present, open to the joys and sorrows of life, and to touch all that arises with a spirit of compassion and joy, beauty. So a story that I read sometimes at retreats and... um, Let's see. That illustrates this is from Richard Selzer, who is a surgeon at Yale University. He writes I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clown like. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be this way from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they dwell in the evening lamplight, touching each other so generously. The woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods, is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. And all at once I know who he is. I understand and lower my gaze. For one is not bold in an encounter with the gods. And unaware of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth and I so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. And I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. So instead of the body of fear, instead of the contracted heart and it will open and close just as the lungs breathe you know and just as the mind opens and closes the heart opens and closes too you can't just say okay I'm going to love everybody now and be like a sunflower and hold it open and never change it's a river and it breathes too it does and you need time off and you need time to sit and walk in the mountains and weep your tears and so forth but underneath all of that There is a knowing and another way to be in this world of its beauty and its sorrows. And this story um, touches that other way to be in all of us who listen. Not to get rid of life, but to remember the freedom of the heart to meet our experience, whatever it is, with compassion. So it's difficult when we first start to sit in meditation. And as I said, it's humbling. 
we have the pains in our body, we have the different kind of reactions that come, liking things and not liking. There's the grasping. We want more. You know, you're sitting there and, oh, you know, if only it weren't so hot and stuffy in here. Now the winds come up. If only it were a little, you know, it weren't so breezy over by these windows. You know, or if only I had one of those nice meditation shawls. You know the if only mine? Or if only I had a little more money in the bank, then I could meditate quite peacefully. And I wouldn't have to worry about, you know. And then you get to the point where only the bell would ring, right? Then I'd be happy. <laughs> but it's a really interesting thing about the bell ringing because you're sitting there, you know, and you start to get restless or you've had enough meditation. You think, oh, if only, when the bell will ring, then I'll be happy. You know the if only mind. And then all of a sudden, at some point, you hear this sound. And you become happy, Right? <laughs> But what is it that made you happy? There you were, feeling restless, impatient, you know, enough of my body and mind. I want somebody, something to entertain me. I want something better than this, right? I want the bell to ring. I want the bell to ring. And then there's that sound. And you haven't moved. Nothing has changed. And all of a sudden, you feel happy. Why is that? It's so because you've stopped wanting. That's actually what makes you happy. It's not so much that the bell rang. I mean, I ring the bell. doesn't make you happy, does it, you know? (laughs) Although it's a beautiful bell. But what happens is that the wanting mind stops for a moment. You go, oh, yeah, here we are again, just sitting, sitting on this earth without being caught in grasping. Or the other side, you know, you sit in meditation and the things you don't want. I don't like what that person said and I don't like what my mind is doing. and I'm judging too much and I should stop all those judgments. I hate all those judgments, you know. Of course, that's just more judgment, right? (laughs) Or, you know, there's pains in your body or somebody's doing something in your life that you don't like and you start thinking about all the ways that you're going to talk to them and straighten them out. And, you know, all the forms of aversion and judgment and fear and dislike. Instead of grasping, it's the resistance to experience. I like this little poem from Lloyd Reynolds, a great calligrapher. He writes, a bug crawls over the paper. Leave him be. We need all the readers we can get. (laughs) And it's so easy in meditation. It's the little things. Oh, I don't want that, you know. But those become part of the resistance to everything. And then we get trapped in not wanting life to be the way it is. This is from the International Herald Tribune. My intention, honest, was not to scare these Japanese kids, scar these Japanese kids for life. I just wanted to give them a a fun American game to play. It was the fifth birthday party last year for my son Gregory, and he had invited all his Japanese friends over from the Tokyo kindergarten that he attended. My wife and I explained the rules of musical chairs, and we started the music. It was not so awful for the Japanese boys. They managed to fight for seats, albeit a bit lamely, but the girls were at sea. The first time I stopped the music, Gregory's five-year-old girlfriend, Chitosi-chan, was next to him, right in front of a chair. But she stood politely and waited for him to be seated first. (laughs) So Gregory scrambled into her seat, and Chitosi-chan beamed proudly at her own good manners. Then I walked over to her and told her that she had just lost the game. She gazed up at me, her eyes full of shocked disbelief, looking like Bambi might after a description discussion of venison. 
You mean I lose because I'm polite? Chitoshi Chan's eyes asked. You mean the point of the game is to be rude? That's the way to win? I guess that is the point anyway. What are we teaching our children? He goes on. So you sit in meditation and you see all the kinds of conditioning, ambition and aversion and aggression on one side and grasping on the other, or you see delusion, denial, not wanting to see the way things are, not wanting to, you know, face the circumstances of our body, the circumstances of our life. The poet John Ciardi writes... An ulcer is an unkissed imagination taking its revenge for having been jilted. It's an undanced dance, an unpainted watercolor, an unwritten poem. And so we sit and sometimes we feel all the things that we've closed ourselves off to and not wanted to feel and not wanted to acknowledge, not wanted to allow. The griefs that we carry, the... the fears that we think would overwhelm us. Um, The things we want to pretend about the world, pretend that it's not a river, that it doesn't keep changing, that there isn't loss as well as gain. But there's another way to live. And something in us knows this, the wise heart in us, our Buddha nature, our true nature, whatever you want to call it, that place in us of wisdom. My teacher Ajahn Chah called it the one who knows. In the Buddhist text it says, those who don't understand are forever either grasping after life or resisting it. But there's a third way. The one who understands, know how to be present for life, the mystery of life as it is. Once a great man sat beneath the tree of enlightenment, goes a Zen poem. He saw the morning star and was enlightened. He absolutely believed his eyes, his ears, his nose, tongue, body, and mind. The sky is blue, the earth is brown. Flowers arise in the spring, leaves fall in the autumn. This is the awakening of the Buddha, to see the way things are in this world. And each time we sit in meditation, there is the same invitation to return to our own Buddha nature, to rest with a mindful presence in all the things that are changing in our life. And to actually relax, to begin to trust the space of awareness itself and the great heart of compassion. The point isn't to try to get rid of your experience or to struggle with it, but to touch it with wisdom and compassion and to sense that there is a reality, a presence, a spirit that's so much greater than the small clingings and fears and confusions that we have. My teacher Nisargadat in India, this wonderful Indian guru, he used to say, the problem with you is not your desires. The problem is that you don't desire enough. You only want these small things. Why not desire everything? Why not desire all of life, the whole of the world? You could really be happy. Why not desire what you have? 
So we sit and we practice meditation. And as we establish this presence and mindfulness, then we see the play of the senses, the river that I spoke of. We see the different states of mind that come and go, fear and confusion on one side, and those are released to love, graciousness, wisdom in another. And we come to trust the awareness itself. This from a friend who's dying of prostate cancer. I read it, I think, a couple weeks ago. My days are short, and as I grow weaker, I experience so much gratitude for my meditation. Not only the joy and ease it brought, but the hard parts. For every bored and restless sitting, and every fearful fantasy, and every pain and ache I sat through, and every itch I didn't scratch, was a training for kindness, a training for the muscle of bearing witness, for the trusting spirit that carries me now to my death. And you can really feel in his words the fruit of learning how to meditate when things are easier, so that then when the difficult things come, yes, I've trained, I know how to do this. I know how to be alive in what's beautiful and in what's painful. What we long for most, connectedness, love, wholeness, freedom, all kinds of words for it, presence, is really here already. It is in us. It is us. Any moment we can return to it, oh, nobly born. And this quality of awareness and mindfulness that we find in meditation is not passive. It's not uh, withdrawal from life. It gives us the connection with life so that we can then move and respond with love. I need to keep going with the story of the parrot from Rumi here. So this parrot gave her message to the merchant, and when he reached India, he saw a field full of parrots. There they were in the trees. He stopped and called out what she had told him. One of the nearest parrots shivered and stiffened and fell down dead. The merchant said, oh, this one surely must be a sister to my parrot. I shouldn't have spoken. He finished his trading and returned home with the presents for his workers. When he got to the parrot, she demanded her gift. What happened when you told my story to the Indian parrots? I'm afraid to say. Oh, master, you must. When I spoke your complaint to the field of chattering birds, it broke one of their hearts. She must have been a sister or close companion for when she heard about you, she grew quiet and trembled and died. And as the cage parrot heard this, she herself quivered and sank to the cage floor. The merchant was a good man. He grieved deeply for his parrot. We'll leave them there. Part two. So here we are, you know, in our cage in one way or another. And we are. All you have to do is close your eyes and start to meditate. And you can see all that stuff. 
And we're looking for some other possibility, some other way. The key to untangle the knots in the body and heart and mind is mindfulness itself, mindfulness, the sacred presence of our attention, the shift of our identity from the conflicts and fears and confusions and all those things that are here to the space that allows them to be without being lost in them. The pure awareness itself, the gateway of liberation. And as we begin to trust mindfulness, it starts to dissolve boundaries. The holding on and the solidity of things start to open. And we experience the river of sensations and the river of emotions and the river of thoughts. It's as if we become bigger. We become the space within which things can arise and pass and move. And sometimes our trauma comes, the healing of the heart needs to happen. That can happen in this space in a way that it can happen rarely anywhere else because we're not resisting our pain, we're not resisting the past. We're bowing to each thing as it comes and say, yes, this too, and we can trust the space of awareness of the heart. When we rest in mindfulness, we also rest in the truth of things, the way things are. Joseph Campbell, who writes, a great mythologist, he says, The first step to the knowledge of the wonder and mystery of life is the recognition of the monstrous nature of the earthly realm as well as its glory. The realization that this is just how it is and that it cannot and will not be changed. Those who think they know how the universe should have been had they created it, without pain, without death, without loss and sorrow, are unfit for illumination. So if you really want to help this world, what you'll have to teach is how to live in it, and that no one can do who has not themselves learned how to live in the joyful sorrow and sorrowful joy of the knowledge of life as it is. So there's a kind of truthfulness in awareness that this is the way things are. I remember last year, I guess it was, I did some teaching in San Francisco with Pema Chodron. And... uh, we were at Masonic Auditorium, and it was a lot of people. It was 2,500 or 3,000 people for an evening. Um, and we took questions after doing some teachings on wisdom and compassion. And at one point, a woman stood up um, and spoke in tears. Um, her partner uh, of many years, a few weeks before, had committed suicide. And it was very raw. You could feel her grief maybe her guilt, what, you know, all the things that come up when someone dies in that way. What did I do wrong? What more could I have done? Um, a lot of pain. And Pema's response was to really begin to teach her compassion for, her, for herself, for the loss, for all that she was holding. And then as I spoke to her... Um, I talked about our human lot and the need to hold 
the measure of sorrows and the measure of beauty that we're given. And I asked in the room how many other people had lost a family member or someone really close to them, a lover, to suicide. And maybe 10% of the people in the room, two or 300 people stood up. And it was an amazing moment. We just were silent. And all these people stood up. And I invited this woman to just look around and see her brothers and sisters. And there we were in our humanity with it all. And the quality of mindfulness and meditation dissolves our boundaries between one another. We're all in it together, you know, in this amazing, beautiful, difficult incarnation. And it somehow allows us to see it truthfully and kindly and compassionately and gives a kind of courage As Martin Luther King Jr. said, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. He said this after his church was bombed. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws, and we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win yours as well. So there's something really great that's asked of us as we sit together um, to remember our capacity to live fully, to live beautifully with courage, nobility, love in the face of the joys and the sorrows of life. And we come together, you know, my friend Annie Lamott says, um, she said, my mind is like a dangerous neighborhood. I try not to go there alone, right? (laughs) We come together in some way for communion, support, love. So this from my friend Fran Peavy, wonderful activist. She writes, one day I was walking through the Stanford University campus with a friend when I saw a crowd of people with cameras and video equipment on a little hillside. They were clustered around a pair of chimpanzees, a male running loose and a female on a chain about 25 feet long. It turned out the male was from Marine World and the female was being studied for something or other at Stanford and who I thought were the spectators were actually scientists and publicity people trying to get them to mate. The male was eager, you know how they can be. He grunted and grabbed the female's chain and tugged. She whimpered and backed away. He pulled again and she pulled back. Watching the chimp's faces, I began to feel sympathy for the female. Suddenly, the female chimp yanked her chain out of the male's grasp. To my amazement, she walked through the crowd straight over to me and took my hand. Then she led me across the circle to the only other two women in the crowd and she joined hands with one of them. The three of us stood together in a circle. I remember the feeling of that rough palm against mine. The little chimp had recognized us and reached out across all the years of evolution to form her own women's support group. (laughs) 
it's not just that we learn to be mindful, to trust our capacity to be present for the joys and beauty and love of life and the music of life and the tears and the sorrow, but that we can do it together, that we feel our connection with life itself, with one another. And I know some of these stories I've told just recently in the past weeks, but they they seem to fit for tonight somehow. So let's go on with the parrot for a little bit more, see what happens. Remember where we left the parrot? Where is she? She fell down, quivered and sank to the cage floor, and the merchant grieved deeply for his parrot. When the merchant threw the dead parrot out of the cage, it spread its wings and glided to a nearby tree. And the merchant suddenly understood the mystery. Sweet singer, what was it in the message that taught you this trick? She told me I was so charmed by my own voice and entranced by the cage, I forgot about freedom. She told me, let go and be released. And I did. The parrot told the merchant one or two more spiritual truths from the treetop, mind you, (laughs) then a tender goodbye. God protect you, said the merchant, as you go on your way. I hope to follow you soon. That's really the story of letting go somehow of the cages we make for ourselves and remembering that freedom is possible. And we learn it from one another. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said, we get it from one warm hand to another. Somebody who holds your hand, who looks at you and says, in the difficulties and in the joyful times of your life, yes, I'm here with you too. I spoke to a friend recently who was describing being at her mother's bedside this last year as her mother died. And she said, we had a really hard relationship for most of our life together. But when my mother started to get sick, I don't know, five years ago or so, her temperament changed and she got a lot kinder and easier and somehow maybe I did too. And she said, by the end of my mother's life, we were really connected in a way that I'd not felt for much of my growing up. See, then there I was, and my mother was on, my mom was lying there on this respirator, and it was really loud, you know, and she was slowly fading. And I sat with her for a number of days, and in the last day or two, I was holding her hand. She didn't want me to leave, and I hardly left. And I started to just breathe along with her and breathe with the rhythm of the respirator. You know, you can link your breath with another person in this amazing way if you sit with somebody who's sick or you want to connect with, just by breathing along with them, the breath starts to connect our consciousness in a very deep way. She said, and I did it hour after hour, and all of a sudden, maybe it's because I was so present with the breath and the sound, all of a sudden, as my brother got really close to death, I could feel myself just being in the space, and the breath was breathing itself in this vast open space, And I felt the space to be silent and still and steady and luminous, which it is. This mind is luminous, says the Buddha, when we open to it. And I felt that I could hold the space, I could be the space for my mother's dying. 
And as I sat with her, as she died, as she died, all of a sudden I had the realization that it wasn't just my mother dying, but that on this day, on this day, each day on earth, 200,000 people die. Half of them are mothers. And I was not only holding the space for my mother, I was the space for all the mothers who were dying. And that we become that for one another. I was also the space for the 250,000 people who were born today. There is a, a woman, an artist in Colorado, who made uh, a work of art that she calls the Salt Monument. And what it is, she built this special wooden building for it. In the middle of the special wooden building is a, 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 a lucite, giant plastic crystal, the shape of a salt crystal, maybe 10 feet high, um, filled with salt, and it rotates once a day. It has a little motor that turns it. And it's filled with 6 billion, 200 million crystals of salt, one crystal of salt for each person on earth. And as the priestess to this temple, every day in the morning, she comes and she takes out 200,000 crystals of salt and buries them in the earth. And that's the 200,000 people that have died that day. And then in the evening, she pours in 250,000 crystals of salt from another container, which are all those human beings who've, who've come to incarnate on the earth. And on the sides, there are, there are little vials of salt, like um, all the people in your neighborhood, and it's this tiny little vial, you know, the people in your family, and there's a few salt crystals in the bottom, all the people you'll ever meet in your lifetime, you know, there's a little bigger. And so you get a sense of how many humans there are. And she's the priestess that does a prayer to, for those who've left, and then does a prayer and a chant for those who come in. Machado, wonderful poet. Let's see if I can find this. Words. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, O oh marvelous error, that a spring was breaking out in my heart. And I said, Along which secret aqueduct, O oh water, are you coming to me? water of a new life that I have never drunk. And last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, oh, marvelous error, that I had a beehive here inside my heart, and the golden bees were making white combs and sweet honey from my old failures. And there's something so beautiful about stopping in meditation and sitting and really not doing much letting our body rest on the earth, coming back to the breathing and the space of awareness and tending to the feelings and thoughts that come and go respectfully each one and allowing the joys and sorrows and gain and loss and all of the things of life to come and go and sit like the Buddha and tend to them. And as we tend to them, then something beautiful starts to grow very deep and beautiful, the, the transformation of the honeycombs out of our old fears and failures. 
so many stories, but I'll stop, I think, from the Tao. If you don't realize the source, you stumble in confusion and sorrow. When you realize where you come from, you naturally become tolerant, disinterested, amused, kind-hearted as a grandmother, dignified as a king. Immersed in the wonder of the Tao, you can deal with whatever life brings to you, and even when death comes, you are ready. It feels like such a gift to take time to sit still, to listen, to come back to center, come back to the space of the heart, and then carry it out into this world that so much needs your understanding and everyone's deep understanding. So let's sit for a moment. Notice the river that you are, the river of sensations of the body that are always changing, the river of sounds, the river of feelings, moods and emotions. the river of perceptions and thoughts. And relax. Make space. Be the space of awareness. And the river as well. Thanks everybody for listening to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We appreciate your support. And we ask you to continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash jack. Look forward to seeing you next week.